0: Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship's Sermon Archive. Our prayer is that you will be abundantly blessed as you listen to this sermon delivered by Pastor Teacher Paul Francisco. Join us as we are appointed to the grace found in Jesus Christ alone as recorded in God's Holy Word.
1: Morning. I think the Lord has orchestrated a complete dependency upon Him as I feel this pain in the pit of my stomach it's knotted up and I've been struggling with it all morning and even at this very moment I feel like I'm going to lose it. So I'm going to depend upon the Lord. And um, I have 10 pages, which is more than I normally have. But don't fret. It just means I actually wrote down more of what I wanted to say instead of um, relying on the Spirit in in that moment. <clears throat> the Madalinsky family, um, we are considering partnering with. Uh, if you guys remember, they have come and visited our church. They're medical missionaries in the Sierra Madre mountains in Mexico. And they face the realities of life and death situations regularly through their medical mission. Uh, they regularly see patients from amongst the Taramada people where health and medical care is greatly diminished. And it's not uncommon to see these patients at their worst only to, to watch them die. Um, parents often don't even name their newborn babies before six months of life due to the large number of babies dying in the first months of their life. And this region, as well, is controlled by the Cianola cartel. In one instance a few years back, Uh, Walter Madalinsky was telling me about this uh, story where a head cartel boss was shot uh, and it went through I think the bottom part of his chin out the other part of his his head and he survived and um, they brought him into the medical mission there and as they were trying to treat him um, the cartel members were pointing guns at the medical staff in in fear for his life. Fortunately for them the Lord uh, gave him favor. They actually saved his life and And now, if you go out there, the C N O cartel actually run all the rest of the criminals out and they give protection over them. Uh, You see, all these things taking place are not just merely bad circumstances, but are directly tied to influences of what we would call spiritual warfare. I want you to, to consider this, beloved. What does Scripture actually say about Satan and his rain here on earth. Anyone have a clue? Anyone want to chime in about that? This is actually interactive. I actually am. Yes, sir. Yeah. In fact, Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 1-3, through it says this, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air. Like you said, brother, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, who were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In other words, we, apart from Christ, are dead in our trespasses, we're spiritually dead walking people, and Satan, who has dominion, the prince of the power of air, has dominion in his demonic room here on earth, free reign given by God, and He has far more power than many of us give Him credit for. I want to show you this morning, beloved, through this, this chapter 5, the entire chapter, as we, from the text, as we act on plans we discern from God's Word, rather than plans we devise from our own wills, the Lord will use us for the development of His kingdom and not its detriment, falling into the traps of spiritual warfare. So we've been in the last couple months in with the book of Esther and walking through this and just I want to kind of give an overall recap. So if you guys remember the opening scene in chapter one of Esther begins with the king, King Ahasuerus, over his kingdom who was um all over, uh, his rule all over the Persian Empire and at this point in time he decides he wants to display his own glory, his own riches and he just shows off to everybody. He has a big party. And it's such a big party that, that that not only the party, he decides to have an after party that lasts for seven more days where he invites the people of, of Susa in the citadel to come and celebrate again. It's all about himself. But then we turn to where he is so excited about himself to show his glory, his riches and everything, and he decides he wants to show his grand prize, his wife, Queen Vashti. And she refuses. Because of her refusal, he feels embarrassed. He feels disrespected. And he listens to the ill advice of his advisors and casts her out and puts her away. She's no longer to be the queen. And then there's this period where they say that you should find another queen, but yet he goes off, and according to historic books, he goes off in these war campaigns and, 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 and nothing happens for a period of years. But then he's feeling bad about things. He's feeling bad about his queen and how you he put her away and doesn't want to go back on what he did so he decides to listen again to ill advice from young men who say hey let's gather all the virgins from around the kingdom bring them here and see who would find favoring your eyes to be your queen and so this is where the story picks up through mordecai and esther and esther again this is not some beauty pageant something to to be prized she's taken against her will just like all these other young women these virgins taken and they go through this time of beautification time to only please the king because it's all about the king once again and then the that Esther finds and wins favor over all that she comes encounter including the king so she becomes queen and as she's having this like like afterwards, he, the king is so excited, he gives out gifts and, and they forgives taxes and all kinds of things for, amongst the people. And then she has this celebration with the women. And Mordecai at the time is serving in the, the king's outer court. Um, and he comes upon what he hears is the plot. A plot of two of the king's advisors or two of the king's, um, men that, eunuchs that serve under him decide that they want to kill the king so he tells Queen Esther and Queen Esther goes to the king and he investigates and discovers it's true and these men are killed and then the king decides to write these things down in his book of Chronicles and just as we would think he's about to give Mordecai and Esther, especially Mordecai these rewards and everything instead the king takes Haman an enemy of the, the people of the Jews, and he promotes him. And he makes him second in command over all the kingdom. And he's supposed to have this honor and everything ascribed to him. And what happens is he's going down through the the, 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 the citadel in Susa. Mordecai decides to rebel and not give him honor and bow down before him. And, and Haman, unawares, because he's so caught up in himself, just like the king... Actually, he didn't even know that he didn't bow to him. It wasn't until these other men who wanted to stir up trouble saw Mordecai and they wanted to ask him about and they questioned him. Mordecai reveals that he's a Jew and they decide to tell Haman. So Haman becomes enraged. And he's so mad and so infuriated about it, he decides to take to the ultimate vindication and decides to manipulate the king to allow him to send out an edict, and the death de- date is set. All the Jews in the Persian Empire at a certain time in the 12th month would be all annihilated, complete genocide of these people and their their belongings looted. And so last week, as we looked at Mordecai, there was um, a story of great laments under the weight of the upcoming execution of the Jews within the Persian Empire. And so as... He is lamenting. Esther decides to inquire upon her older cousin, Mordecai. And Mordecai, through communication of the eunuchs, decides to give an exhortation to Esther to act on behalf of her people and to resolve Esther to take risks, trusting in the deliverance of the Jews by the Lord. Now in this next chapter, we will see a tale of two plans. Two plans put into action. One that is working for the sake of the kingdom and the other demonstrating the spiritual battle of opposing darkness. And so this morning we will see the kingdom work in spiritual warfare, particularly in our first point, how to be used for the kingdom for kingdom work. and so I actually put this together through verses here, so if you'd like to take notes, this will be very helpful because this is how we'll be walking it through it um, and so I want to give you some practical implication application of the text in verse 1, to put feet to your faith. Secondly, we see in verse 2, how to experience God's favor. Thirdly, to be selfless. And then the remaining verses of 4 through 8, we see be strategic. So these are subpoints of our first point. And then we will go to our second point and we'll see the opposite. Spiritual warfare at work and how the devil how satan fuels idolatry rather than forsake it so if you want to use be used by the devil feel your idolatry rather than forsake it in verse 9 and then be convinced of your own significance in verses 10 through 13 verse 14 has two points to it subpoints to it listen to the voices of compliance rather than conviction and lastly devalue the lives of others and eliminate any in The way. Okay, so Esther 5 is a a tale of two plans. Esther had a a plan, and so did Haman. These two plans had their origin from two very different sources. Esther's plan was birthed from fasting and prayer, and Haman's was derived from Hatred and rage against Mordecai. One plan was to save life and the other was to take it. One was out of selflessness regarding her own life and the other was full of selfishness and envy towards the Jews. And the outcome that we will soon find out comes with two very different results in the plan. Esther's plan will be of a great deliverance with Haman's while Haman's comes with great destruction. This story comes with questions for us to think about and implications of for our actions to contemplate in our own lives, beloved. Let me ask you these things. Whose plans are we carrying out? Are the plans we act on for the purpose of making our names or God's name great? Are they about... Our kingdom or his? Are they marked by selfishness or selflessness? Do the plans we carry out involve living by faith at all? Do they involve our experiencing God's power as we walk in obedience? Do they result in the advancement of the gospel? Esther 5 demonstrates for us that God's people are starting to see his providence. And instead of asking, they move to action on God's plan for His people. And if we look deeper at this text, we will see how we can be used for kingdom work rather than feed into the darkness of spiritual warfare at work. And through this text, I want to give you four steps or actions we can take in order to be used by God for kingdom work. And it's the same thing I just put up here. Put faith to faith, experience God's favor, be selfless, be strategic. So let's look at verse 1. It says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. So we see after a period of fasting, Esther did exactly what she said she was going to do. She put her robes on and made her way to the throne room. Knowing that what it could cost, that it could cost her life, that there was, but there was no failure to launch on her behalf. Esther put her feet to her faith and that's exactly what we need. Beloved saints, we must be proactive in our faith instead of passive. People who hope to be used by God must boldly put themselves in position to be used by God. We need to be in a place where God can work through us. Rather than sitting back and hoping for God to do something, we are to make the most of every stewardship that the Lord entrusts to us. We should be using our time, our gifts, our resources for the sake of the King. How many times do we hear about a particular ministry and we wish we could help? But, instead we never do anything. You you see, kingdom work requires action on our part, not passivity. Instead of faith in the Lord and walking in obedience, we often choose fear and disobedience. Some of us here will hear an exhortation of biblical truth and actually become numb to it. There are those who will attend, and I'm not necessarily saying in this church, but someone who attend service every Sunday hear the Word of God and become numb to it. Just storing up the wrath of God against themselves, never allowing His Word to sink deep in their heart and let the spiritual birth of His Word to take place. While others may desire to do something, but become paralyzed by their own procrastination. You see, friends, there is a dangerous presumption behind Procrastination. You might say, well, I have more time and opportunity to do this in the future. However, I want you to listen what the Apostle James has to say about this. James chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist, a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This past month, I got the privilege of supporting and attending two banquet fundraisers on Pro-Life. One with the Westside Pregnancy Care Center and the other one with the Southwest Coalition. And I was really stirred in my heart for for life and and I was so grateful to be able to to be there and and as a Christian I could say yes to life. But sit around and never do anything but talk about. It. You see these babies do not have a voice. So we must be their voice in action. I remember the guy the guest speaker this last week at the Southwest Coalition. She actually was a woman who had three abortions for herself, ended up later working for the Planned Parenthood, and they hired her illegally to be a a nurse. She had no credentials. And then one of the first things they did because of her bivocational or bilingual skills of Spanish and her whole thing was to convince these young 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old girls who only spoke spanish to have the abortion they, they would insist on five minutes because time is money have an abortion of five minutes the next go in and out they weren't allowed they were t- retraining her vocabulary never say the words mother or baby or father but it's a fetus okay and then they stuck her with an abortionist and then she saw for the first time because when she had her abortions she had her eyes closed she just wanted to get through it but she saw for the first time the horrors of what happened. And as the parts and the remains fell into a bag and she was escorted behind the door, she was horrified as her co-worker put the remains on the table and one of the ways that they needed to know that the abortion was successful was that they had to find five, five pieces. And she talked about seeing the leg and the arm and so forth and the last part was the skull where she saw the mouth open like screams of a baby for life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in a day and age where this is nothing but a profit-making scheme. And if you are Christian, you need to advocate for life. Not just speak about, be willing to support it. We need to be willing to support uh ministries that want to help adopt babies we want to help mothers not only not kill their own babies but give them resources and everything and i am just so overwhelmed by the fact and here's some amazing things i was talking to the director this was just amazing since they started this work this regional support for three years they had like these five clinics including planned parenthood where they've committed all these abortion things and then they have these others that you know help support life and everything. Their whole job was to bring the women from these places and connect them to these resources. And they have the mobile unit where they can get free pregnancy tests and sonograms and see the baby. And just over three years, they saw three clinics shut down. And then this past summer, Planned Parenthood shut down. And then this other one, which is the Santa Teresa, they just heard recently from um, I think the owners of the building where the Santa Teresa abortion clinic is they had, the doctor had told them that they were not going to renew in 2022. So for the very first time in 2022, there's expected to be zero, zero abortions in El Paso County. Praise be to God. That is an amazing thing, but you know what? This comes with people putting feet to action. Willing to say with more than just their lips, but willing to put money, put time, to volunteer, resources, all these things. And we, beloved, are called to do something and not procrastinating. And wh- I just want to ask you, what are you procrastinating on in obedience to the Lord today? You see, Esther did not postpone following through with her commitment. No more reasoning with what it could cost her. Just resolve. Jesus' resolve for all humanity was even greater. You see, Jesus did not walk away from the cross, but He walked towards it. In Jesus Christ, there was no reluctance or rationalizing, just resolve. You see, Esther was uncertain that she would live, but Christ was certain that He would die. Esther's fasting led to faithfulness, but Christ was born so that we could have faith. As one commentator writes, God never puts us in positions of opportunity just so we can consider doing something or almost do something or maybe do something. He puts us in positions of opportunity to be obedient and to be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. Beloved, we have been given a command to put our feet to faith. As well. Our dear brother was teaching this morning in our connections hour and he talked about the mandate. What is the mandate? Anyone know what's the mandate that God has given us? Yeah, the Great Commission, right? That's a mandate. Uh, have we had any mandates in our time today, in our day and age, with this thing called COVID 19? Right? We have. Do we have a problem following that mandate? Most of the time, you know, I'm I'm not saying that because I know some of us are like, yeah. But I mean, we we we've, we've gone through we've gone through this and we followed these things that have been put out there. What about the Great Commission? And Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." And the verb is not go. Therefore. Actually, you can read it as, as you are going, make disciples, that's a verb, of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. We cannot exhaust that in this lifetime, beloved. And He is with us. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of age. Are you, are we delaying obedience to this command in any way? You see, the death date was set for the Jews and there was no time for Esther to delay. In our world of 7 billion plus people, people perish every day. With many who perish, there are so many that perish never hearing the name Jesus, never hearing the Gospel. There is no time for our delaying either. So... Let us experience God's favor in verse 2. It says, When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The moment of truth had arrived for Esther. For her high stakes risk, The tension is high. Would Esther be received or would she be rejected? Will she live or will she die? Esther had done everything she could do. She had fasted and put on her royal robe praying for favor before the king. Whether she lived or died depended on the king's look. Whether she lived or died depended on how he looked at her. Have you ever been in a situation in which you were acting in faith but you were uncertain? how the outcome would turn out. I'm sure many of us can agree to that. Every week that I prepare for the message, I'm faced with the text. Some weeks are harder than others. But if I am to be faithful, I must say the hard things that are in the text. But I don't know how it's going to be received. It would be much easier to speak about mercy and forgiveness of christ but when i'm confronted with these things like our sin and rebellion it's uncomfortable particularly in the book of esther has been filled with a a labor in the word each week i must choose to obey the lord in his spirit to speak and by god's grace you guys still love me praise me to god and you receive the word it's It's honestly, some some days I think, wow, you guys still love me? You haven't thrown me out yet. You know, each gospel opportunity we are given is a choice between fear and faith. Let me say that again. Each gospel opportunity we are given is a choice between fear and faith. We can do what we committed to do, not because we are strong, but Jesus is. We serve in His strength for His glory. When we put feet To faith, we should not be surprised in God's favor. Saints, the same was true for Esther. Soon as the king saw her, he granted her favor in life. For the fourth time, the author uses this expression in the active voice, one favor. You see, the king extended the scepter to Esther. And Esther may have broken protocol up until this point, but she sure didn't want to break it this, once she got favor in his eyes. So she touched the golden scepter held by the king, and her goal wasn't just to enter the king's court and win favor, though. What was her goal? Her goal was to end the edict against her people. The death date set to annihilate all the Jews in the Persian kingdom. And her first objective was complete. Now her second was in motion. Addressing the king king was the next phase of her plan. But she had to be selfless. From verse 3, the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even half of my kingdom. Esther's life was spared, and she could have stopped there with her request. She, she was given an opportunity with Asuerus, and he asked even, he even offered up half his kingdom. Dowden, Landon Dowden captures insight to the king's behavior, and he writes this. He says, This moment is one of the few in the book when the king actually seems perceptive. In most other situations, he, he either comes off drunk, dense, or depraved. But in this exchange, however, he sensed something was important enough for Esther to take the action she had. So he inquired as what to, to what might be the cause. When you hear him saying something like, Half of my kingdom. I mean, it begs the question, was he really willing to give up half his kingdom on her behalf? To be certain that the king's favor came both willingly and with genuine care. The author makes sure to repeat this phrase two more times. If you look at verse 6, it's repeated there as well. And then if you go to chapter 7, verse 2, you will see it again. So this was no slip of the tongue. This wasn't just something he said, but this is something he intended. He meant. He had favor he had concern for Esther here so this demonstrated his formal willingness and generosity towards Esther and now Esther was given or provided a window of opportunity instead of asking for possessions or her own life she desired her people however just as wisdom was needed in how she approached the king again it was needed in what she would say Selflessness is a mark of all those in God being used to, b- to build up His kingdom. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote every, wrote every time in his epistles and he referred to himself as servant or slave of God. This character trait would be evident in our homes as well. But for Esther, selflessness wasn't enough. She needed to be strategic in how she deployed her plan into action. So read with me in verse 4 through 8. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom." There it is again. It shall be fulfilled then esther answered my wish and my request is if i have found favor in the sight of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request let the king and haman come to the feast that i will prepare for them and tomorrow i'll do as the king has said you see when it if you guys like to watch sports and today's sunday right there's football i like to watch football right when it comes to watching our favorite sports in order to have a successful win, they, they must study their opponents and come up with a plan how to exploit their weaknesses. You see, Esther finally came to the moment of anticipated petition. She had the king's attention. And she could plead her case, but she was also aware of her enemy. Instead of just asking for freedom from this edict, she invites Asuerus to feast with Haman. Perhaps... She she knew a way to a man's heart is through his belly. She had a strategic plan, nonetheless, to not only speak to the king, but also to expose Haman's treachery. The fact that she had a meal prepared already revealed two things about her. A, Esther was hopeful that she would live, and B, she had a plan. Her request not, wasn't just a nervous delay, but it was a deliberate strategic plan. Why would Esther need to be strategic? The king had already offered her half his kingdom. Let me give you four reasons to consider. First, she was asking for a reversal of an irreversible law. Sponsored by the most powerful advisor in the empire. So she would be asking for a reverse of a irreversible law, okay? This was Signed in the king's signet ring. It was not supposed to be broken. Secondly, if the king granted her request, it could cost him 10,000 talents of silver. Because if we remember back, that was part of the manipulation of Haman with the king. 10,000 talents of silver. It would cost him that. Thirdly, it would be hard for the king to grant it without losing faith. Why do I say that? I mean, he gave permission. He gave his ring. He said, go ahead and do so. It pleased him. So it would be like he had to backtrack and say, oh, I made a mistake. And fourthly, she would have to reveal her hidden Jewish identity. You see, up until the point, she had never revealed that she was a Jew because of Mordecai's advice to her. Risking a potential backlash from the king, she had apparently been deceiving for the last five years. So, by having this peace for the king provided a strategic advantage. This eliminated the risk of embarrassing the king while he was on the throne. Because when he when she approached him, he was in the throne room. He was in the inner court. Okay? In front of all his advisors and all people. But she approached him and she invited him to a meal So, she freed him from an embarrassing moment while on the throne. And when considering all these reasons together, strategy seems quite wise in this matter, doesn't it? Now after Asuerus' belly is full and he's feeling relaxed by the wine, he's ready to fulfill his wife's request. So he asks again. And again Esther requests another invitation to a meal. Before we think this could be another attempt at stalling through another party invitation, look carefully at her wording. She did not just invite the king to another feast, but she connected his attendance with his answer to her unnamed request. Do you see that in the text? Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I found favor in the king's sight, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'll prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. In other words, tomorrow I will tell the king his request. I swear as in Haman's presence at this next feast was all deliberate. She plays on the ego of her enemy. Both the king's curiosity and commitment level at this point have been piqued. We should give special credit to Esther for insisting on Haman's presence. Very few enjoy confrontation right and even fewer handle it in a biblical way talking about people is a lot easier if they're not present she invites her enemy into the presence of the king and herself so, so that she might reveal the truth about Haman and it takes a lot of wisdom to confront others with biblical shrewdness such as this but this is precisely what Jesus told his disciples to do Matthew chapter 10 you can turn there if you want. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be what wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise as serpents and innocent as, as doves. As one commentator puts it, each of Esther's words that are recorded for us are measured but she would eventually give us where's the details of her request when seeking to see those around us come to christ we may be strategic with what what where and when we share with them the gospel but we cannot be silent forever we cannot hope people make it to heaven just by observing our lives any more than as sarah could discern discern what esther wanted just by attending her feast as we seek to be used by God for the building up of His kingdom. We need to follow the Lord's plan and His timing, even if we do not fully understand either of them. So Esther did not know what would happen when she approached the king, nor did she know how these meals would turn out. She just made a strategic plan. This two-feast plan came from wisdom above during her time of fasting. We may not understand the Lord's plan fully, but this doesn't mean that we lack the knowledge to act faithfully. We have God's Word, beloved. We have His Word which guides and directs us to the truth and holy living. Not knowing the outcome doesn't excuse us from acting wisely in faith. The Lord doesn't give us all the details. You know why? You know why, friends? Because He wants us to trust in His presence, His provision, and His promises. Let us not forget that Esther the king and even Haman were all acting on behalf of God's providential plan. The Lord's plans are the only plans that will be fully accomplished. But there's still an opposing force taking place. Satan and all his demonic minions are scheming up plans as well. Let's look at verse 9. Through 14. Before I read this one, let me say a few things here. See, God is certainly not the only one who makes plans. But his plans are the only ones that will ultimately prevail. The enemy, he can use our actions, our conversations, or even our ambitions for the detriment of God's kingdom rather than its development. Satan makes plans all the time for the destruction of God's people, and he uses others to carry them out. Haman probably had no clue that Satan was at work in his life. And his attempt to wipe out the messianic line was likely operating out of his own evil desires that were already in his heart. Therefore, it's important that we examine our lives. That we are not unknowingly carrying out Satan's plans rather than the Savior's. This is the four things to know that Satan is at work in spiritual warfare. And this is what I shared up here. You can read that again. Spiritual warfare at work. Fueling idolatry is the first of these. So in verse 9 we see in the text, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. I want you to consider a moment in your, your memories, when you were perhaps at a time filled with great happiness and then something happens only to shift your emotion. I remember when me and my family moved to Louisville. Uh, I think Hope was a newborn baby and we moved from the D.C. area to Louisville um, so that I can finish seminary. And shortly after being there, we were like in our second week there, uh, we decided to, to go to the seminary. So we spent the day at the seminary having fun as a family. They had a swimming pool, so we were swimming. We got to play in the playgrounds. We got to meet other families and missionaries. And we were so encouraged in the faith. And then we came home, and we pulled in, and I remember looking up, and the front door was open. So I turned to my wife, and I said, Did you know our front door was open? So I thought, stay right here. and go check it out. I'm walking through the door. My couch pushed forward. My back door opened. Window busted in. And I started looking around. And then everything of value was gone. Including even my daughter's Christmas present that we later had a conversation about. We had been robbed. And I remember, you know, this feeling of being violated. Right? So we went from this spiritual high of happiness, joy to this just gut-filling of like, ugh, what just happened? See, after being invited to a private feast of honor with the king and the queen, then receiving another invitation to do it all again the next day, Heman's ego was stroked. He He was on top of the world until he saw Mordecai. He went from joy to rage in a moment, perhaps we need to ask ourselves two questions. In what way or whom do we steal joy from? Or what or who kills joy in our own lives? On Jesus' last night with his disciples, he spoke to them. In John 16:22, he says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Some argue whether Jesus meant his resurrection or his second coming. I believe it to be the latter that his returning at some point in the future as his disciples would be united with Christ just like us, we would receive irrevocable joy. See, while those in Christ can have indestructible joy, the full experience of it cannot be realized into heaven though. In the intermediate period, our joy will never be fully removed. But it can be diminished. And when that happens, it's because we pursue a false joy most often in our own sin. You see, saints, all sin is a form of idolatry because it trusts in something else. Rather than believe God, we say this thing, whatever it is, has our affections. Nothing diminishes our joy faster than sin. And in Haman's case, joy was quickly diminished by embracing anger anger fueled by pride. In essence, it was self-idolatry because he wasn't getting what he thought he deserved. He desired and felt worthy of receiving this prideful honor from Mordecai and Mordecai didn't, get, didn't give it to him. But all the blame still resided within his own wicked heart. You see, all sin is a choice and all sin comes with a cost. Because the object of Haman's joy was too small. He couldn't sustain the attack cast upon him by the sins of anger, pride, and coveting. The joy in our daily life is a spiritual battleground, beloved. What is killing your joy today? Let us not fuel idolatry. Rather, let's forsake it. Let's flee from it. We live in a world world where we're bombarded with things. So many things Things used by Satan as a means to steal or distract our joy from Christ. These weapons of darkness attempting to capture our hearts. These tools of evil to stir up idolatry in our hearts. Our world filled with promotions. And bonuses at work, on-demand TV, all-you-can-eat buffets, accessibility to pornography, the newest technological devices, and the list goes on and on. So why do we crave so much what we lack? We must guard ourselves against making idols of the heart. You see, saints, the one thing Haman wanted more than anything was Mordecai to bow down before him. And when we seek to feed our idolatries rather than starving them, we end up emptier than ever. Even in bondage to them. We, what are the, Let me ask you this question. What are the hidden idols of your heart? If you want to shine a light on them and plead from the false joys of them, maybe you ask yourselves what causes your strongest emotions, both good and bad, I like how this commentator writes, he says, What is the causes, what what is it that causes us to be angry out of proportion to the offense? There is a clue that one of our idols is being threatened. What is it that makes us feel unusually strong with our sense of achievement? Maybe it's one of our idols being stroked. Saints, God has today, ask God today, to use his spirit and his word to help you. Help, help you identify any idols that you may have. Then ask Christ for his grace to flee from them. Rather than continuing to feed these idols of the heart. And let's look at verse 10 to 13 being convinced of our own significance as another major detriment, another major feeding and fueling into the darkness of spiritual warfare. And the text tells us, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to him the splendor of his riches, the number of all his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him. Now he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast, she prepared. And tomorrow I am also invited by her together with the king. Let all this, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. You see, Haman left that quick encounter with a diminished joy of his own self worth. So what did he do? He went home and he wanted to make himself feel better. So Haman was convinced that he was somebody of importance and he needed to make sure everyone else knew. So he invites them all over to his home, and he recounts all that he has had and he accomplished. Haman took out a play out of the king's playbook. He decided to invite people over so they could be amazed at his own glory. And of course, he attributes none of this to the blessings of God. He did not want to share his glory. Instead, he wanted his to be recognized. His pride needed to be fed with the false view of importance. But pride is a fool's joy and they won't last forever. Remember Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goes before what? The fall or destruction. And a hot of spirit before a fall. My my family and I on Friday night, it's our family time, so we decided to watch a family movie and we watched a, a movie on the story of um, Samson, Friday night, and and one of the scenes that when Samson had acted upon his strength given to him by the Lord, he struck down. And the, the Bible says it. it's right there in the Bible. It says he struck down a thousand men with just the jawbone of a donkey. However, when he wasn't following what the Lord had called him to do, his strength was taken from him when he was seduced by a woman named Delilah thinking he would escape easily on his own. Instead, his eyes were gouged out and he was taken captive. He had to be humbled. See, Haman wanted all eyes gazed upon him. However, the Lord tells us whose eyes are gazed upon. Do you remember the prophet Isaiah? Chapter 66. To this one I stand. To this one I look. Who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If you are convinced of God's greatness more than your own, then you're walking, as we sang earlier, on solid ground. But opposite of pride is humility. And this is what Christ desires of us. We must preach this to ourselves. Just as my brother reminds me all the time, stay humble. We must preach this to ourselves. If we ask God for it, humility will flourish and pride will diminish. How do you think Haman's sons may have felt being named as one of his glories, but only to hear that they were included amongst everything that meant nothing to him. In comparison to not receiving honor from Mordecai, Haman lists out all his treasures, all his accomplishments, and places of honor, and even his own children, his own sons, and then he says they are worth nothing if Mordecai still exists. How oblivious. We can be to how deeply we wound those around us. When we are blinded by our own pride and driven by idolatry, if you think back each day and carefully give God glory for each grace, then this cultivation of gratitude will help you avoid feeling your own pride. May we have eyes to clearly see and consider others more significant than ourselves. And this is why we look to verse 14. Verse 14, we can see two things here. The deballion of life and eliminating those in the way and listening to voices of compliance rather than conviction. It says, Then his wife, Ezeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let let a gallows, so this is a wooden beam, gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Because uh, So he gets done just telling him, hey, look at all the great things I've done, all my glories, all my riches, all these things, but I'm, I, I'm unhappy. He's Mordecai's still alive, so this is the great advice that they give him. Go kill, go kill your enemy. Then go joyfully, and after you kill him, go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, And he had the gallows made. Instead of, instead of encouraging him to mortify his sin, the group gathering in Haman's home encouraged him to kill Mordecai. They contributed to his sin rather than confronted him about it. As I spoke about last week, there's nothing loving about being silent on sin. We all need Nathans in our lives. We should be asking other members of the church, our family members, our spouses, to help us, to not aid in our sin, but to help us forsake our sin. Without others, beloved, to help us see clearly, we will listen to our own arguments. We will believe our own lies and give in to our own delusions. Different from Esther's plan, birth from fasting and prayer, Haman's plan was given to him by a moment of reaction. This was a plan from Satan and would only benefit Haman so he could stroke his own ego by murdering another, devaluing the life of another, and attempting to eliminate any in his way. Like squares who listened to the unwise counsel of young men, Haman listens to a group of fools. You see, both the king and Haman needed new counselors. They were both easily pleased by horrific recommendations of fools. Haman didn't have the guts to do something, and what he felt at the moment Instead, he needed to be affirmed in the voices of complicit evil. Haman didn't have conviction. Rather, he heard demonic voices. Go. Go hang the one who steals your joy. Then go find happiness at a feast. How demonic is that? This pleased Haman. I guess the HOA didn't have restrictions against him building gallows, right? One would be hard pressed to find a more shocking example than the devaluating devaluing of a life and this advice of Haman's friends. And unfortunately for Haman, he was building a b- device that he didn't know about that later would be used for his own doom. Haman's refusal to see value in Mordecai's life would lead to the loss of his own life. Is there any area you are currently elevating your interest above others? Are there others only valuable to you when they fit your agenda? Do you want to be used for the kingdom work by the one true King, beloved? Listen to this, saints. The Apostle Paul writes in chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 3-5, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So now we're left with an ultimate cliffhanger here at the end of chapter 5. You're like, no! I want to hear the next story! Well, you're just going to have to come back. Sorry. Both Esther and Haman had plans, but neither knew the outcome of theirs. What they didn't know in God's providential plan while they slept that night, the king would have a providential moment, a providential night in insomnia. You can peek ahead. You can read the story. He has a night of insomnia in chapter 6. You see, when facing spiritual warfare, we must look to God from wisdom above. Through the Lord, just like Esther, he uses us in battle against his kingdom through strategic, godly wisdom, a selfless plan that put her feet to faith, which she was experiencing God's favor. Christian, the Gospel offers true significance. Nothing speaks more to your significance than God the Father caring enough to be involved in your situation, sending God the Son Christ to lay down His life in your place and empower you with God the Spirit, His Spirit for the purpose of the kingdom. This is eternal significance. We just fail at times to apply it to our lives. We search for fleeting significance rather than resting in the Eternal One. You have been approved by God in Christ Jesus. You cannot be significant and you cannot be more set free to serve in obscurity because it it is about His name and not ours. And I pray, saints, I pray, Christians, I pray... Beloved children of God, I pray that in that joy in the gospel is fueling, it is thriving, it's filling the blood of your veins for joy in the gospel in obedience. And friends, in our daily lives, spiritual warfare rages. The flesh, the world, and the devil do not take holidays. Sorry to tell you that. Are you? The question is this the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and he mentioned this about vessels. Are you being used as vessels vessel for honorable use or dishonorable use? You see, you can't rely on your own strength and encourage to carry you through life. Living for yourself or earning your way into God's favor is fruitless. You cannot do it. It is impossible. But friends, come. Come to the righteous who will rescue you. And He will rescue you by His blood. Let us close our time in two texts here from Philippians and Romans. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Without whining or fighting. Okay? Okay? that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you, you beloved, shine as lights in this world. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off, let us put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us Pray this. God, we thank You for Your Word. It is unbearable to feel the weight of how we need to act, to trust, to know that we're sinful and prideful, that we fuel our own idolatries, and we don't praise You and honor You as we ought to. But thanks be to God that we have the truth of Your Word. That we can trust and obey that You are good. That You are kind. That You are loving. That You are merciful. That You will do what we could not. You will accomplish what we couldn't. You have purchased for us the rewards of eternal life. If we repent, if we believe if we believe upon the name jesus that she rose from the dead so praise be to god for that lord this morning help us to trust in you help us to know that all we have to do is say yes to you and make ourselves available let your spirit take over help us to be obedient to the call you have in our lives Help us to flee from the idolatries, the things that would steal our affections away from Christ. Lead us, not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Praise the
0: Lord that His Word is sufficient for our every need. Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible word. We would also love to have you join us in person at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday at 9 a.m. for connections and at 1030 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the Baptist Student Ministry at 101 East University near Utah. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-308-1208 or visit our website at www.gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as GBF gathers to proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.